0: This is my second conversation with Bob Cooley. In episode one, we discuss Bob's youth in Chicago and his turmoil with his parents because of his family's poverty. This conversation leads into his years as a young adult and a scholarship at Marquette that does not end well. After a series of odd jobs, he becomes a cop and meets his initial contact with the Chicago outfit. One quick note, if you're listening on Buzzsprout, some of the chapter titles are links to further details on the web about people and places we've discussed. Here we go, conversation two of the Cooley account. Bob, you told me a very touching story about your mother. You were working three to four jobs as a seven-year-old. The money you made would go to your mother for collection, You end up going to university, and your mother presents you with the bank account of the money that she had saved for you. You were angry in the moment thinking, why do I have to give all this money away? But ultimately, your mother did the right thing and and had saved this money for you. Your motivation to go work and collect this spare change and these spare dollars and these multiple jobs wasn't something that was foisted upon you by your parents saying, hey, we're strapped here, Bob, you got to go out and bring in some money. It was, oh, no, they, they, it was motivated by you having yeah. this desire to not eat vegetables, essentially.
1: <laughs> so I could survive, so I could, so I could, there's no, and I'll be honest. I used to, I used to steal stuff out of stores cause I was hungry and uh, you know, and I always got worried about getting caught. So that's why I started doing the other way I would get money too. My father played, my father played you know poker. He had, you know, some police friends of his and other friends. And what I would do every day after they finished up, first thing in the morning, I'd get up and I'd go digging in, into the couch and find some pennies and nickels and whatever. Once in a while, find a dime. that was, yeah, would fall out of their pockets. The one thing we did almost as a family is was collecting newspapers. We'd go out with our little wagons and go up and down the alleys. And, uh, and collect newspapers and I do remember too it was $1 a dollar a a dollar a pound she got but there'd be a truck that would drive up and down the alleys picking up newspapers themselves but we would we would store the papers in the in the garage and you'd have like a whole the whole wall you know and my mother would you know bundle them bundle them in these bundles in these big bundles she'd you know wrap some like uh, not not string, it was you know, heavier than that. But she would wrap it around, and he would come every, every, every so often, and you know, and, and uh, almost fill up half a truck. Uh, you know, of the papers, you know, from our garage.
0: As you're progressing through school, are you continuing to work these odd jobs?
1: Yes, for a while. And in my childhood, you could actually break into three different periods. Uh, 74th and Vernon, that's when I was, you know, from the time up until I was about maybe eight, nine years old. And then when we moved to 76th and Langley, that's when I started working, you know, because now uh, 79th Street was a busy street there in the south side. I remember Oglesby Drugstore was about two blocks away right there in the corner, Langley and 79th Street. I, I don't remember how I wound up finding Barimus. Barimus was a Greek that had a grocery store. and I don't know how I wound up getting the job there because it was actually about a mile from the house, a little over a mile from the house. The problems I had with that too was the neighborhood, it started turning, you know, turning, the black started coming in. And uh, it got to the point where we were one of the last families to move out. And it got to be a problem when I'm driving my bike over to the grocery, or coming, you know, coming back, especially at night when it's dark. I'd be jumped by, you know, two or three of these black kids who would rob me. And uh, that was when, that was the period too when finally I stopped taking it and I began began to fight back and that's when a a whole lot of my world changed. I got tired of being, you know, picked on all the time because, you know, my size. When I would go back and forth on the bike, I I would wind up carrying a small baseball bat. Uh, you know, and, and I would fight them off Got to the point where they'd leave me alone. But prior to that, too, even walking to school, we carried our lunch all the time to school. They'd they steal my lunch all the time, and I decided to start fighting back, and that's when I uh, my whole personality changed in a lot of ways. One of the most bizarre things about my childhood, and, and it's jumping forward a little bit, one of the people that I met was a kid named John Began. I write about a little bit about him in the book. That's the one that became a multimillionaire and all the rest of it. That's the one that I started running around with. When we, when we, when we moved to 76th and Langley, Began's family had moved there in that same area, in fact, lived about a block away from me. And the way we became friends was he started beating me. He was, he was a big, tough kid. And he, uh, he, he used to pick on me until I started fighting back. What John started doing was arranging fights. When I would come, when I would come home, uh, Deegan would be waiting for me there. There was, there was three of us that ran around over there, Ronnie Ballard, John Deegan, and myself, the three of us, along with a few other, few other guys after a short period of time. Right next to Ronnie Ballard's house, there was a vacant lot. And that's where the, that's where the fights would be. John would tell all these people about this tough friend of his, you know, who would be, you know, moving, who, who had just moved in the neighborhood. And it, this lasted for a period of about, probably about, I'd say a month, month and a half, there'd be a fight arranged with different kids from St. Felicitas. So he was, and he then, was, he
0: was the fight promoter and you were the talent. This must have been for your ego and your confidence, a really important moment that these kids were oh, rallying I mean, around you as the main event in
1: street Absolutely. Fights. In fact, the way it started was, you know, because I was so small, it would be, you know, it would be different ones from the eighth grade or from the seventh grade, and, you know, that were, you know, bigger than me, but, you know, but not real big. About a good, in fact, it went on for about, a, about six weeks where every other day when I come home, there's a fight until the police got called. Because, you know, somebody lived in a house like next door and you'd have this group of about maybe probably 20, 25 kids that would meet there, you know, waiting for the fight. John became an unbelievable part, unwittingly, of all the things, a lot of the things that, that transpired. I'm jumping forward a bit, but I think it's really, really important. When John was a wrestler, too, at Mount Carmel, John wound up going to Mount Carmel, same as me. When I graduated, I didn't want to go to college. I wanted to start going out and making some money. In fact, I was dating a girl whose father worked in the steel mills. And, uh, and my thought was you know, we might get married and I'll move into her basement. They had a, like a basement apartment where she lived. Okay. In fact, I remember the name, Carol Petersack. And the next thing I know, I'm contacted by, uh, the wrestling coach at Marquette and, uh, wants me to, uh, you know, wants me to come down there. Uh, and, and you know, and work out with him and with the kids, and possibly get me a scholarship. And
0: you're talking he about, told, of course, just to just to put a fine point on it, for those that don't know, you're talking about Marquette University in Milwaukee, north of Chicago. Right.
1: Right. Now, the the only reason they could have known about that, I'm sure, had to be my father. Why would a university know anything about my wrestling abilities? In fact, there were very few. Catholic schools that had wrestling teams. I remember Mendel had one, but most of our wrestling was done with the public schools.
0: Mount Carmel was and remains to this day a powerhouse.
1: Uh, You know, one of the most powerful in the state. I wound up going to uh, Marquette uh, with a a wrestling scholarship. John didn't, but John's parents had a little bit of money. Uh, His father was like the opposite of mine. His father was a miserable, nasty drunk. John and I went to Marquette and while we were at Marquette the first day I was at Marquette I met I met uh, Bill Murphy who became one of my closest friends and it turns out Bill Murphy wound up being a public defender and wound up being Frank Wilson's public defender and that's how I met Frank Wilson.
0: We'll get to that down the road for sure and tie those strands together
1: but anyhow the first when i first met bill murphy i don't remember doing that but he told me the first day i met him i told him how tough i was on the i was living on the jock floor on the sixth floor at uh at schrader hall and that's when i one of the first people i met there was bill murphy and he had gone to mount to mendel high school which was our big big opponent and had we met even a, a couple weeks before we would have been fighting uh, because we had all kinds of fights with at St. Sabina's, you know, with the Mendel people and the others.
0: I want to hear about the Marquette years, but let's go back for a moment. What is your perception of the city of Chicago, crime? Is the outfit influencing your neighborhood or your household? Is it a topic of conversation or is it something you don't come upon until much later in life?
1: Didn't did that, did as I grew up, even up until, you know, my college years and the rest, even as, even when I first became a policeman, never had any thoughts at all about any of that. All I knew about was what I would read in the paper, that there was a mafia and that there was, but I knew nothing about any of that.
0: Yeah, and it wasn't, they weren't controlling your neighborhood. There wasn't a guy on the street corner who you had to pay this to. It just was something. Oh, that no,
1: was un- no, as I grew up, as I grew up, you know, as I say, I grew up in the hood. Uh, you know, there were no mafia people around there. the The, the gangsters were the bla- were the blacks. Uh, you know, were the blacks there? You know, the Peace Stone Nation and the rest of it.
0: Jeff Fort, the yeah. Almighty Peace Stone Nation, which we'll talk about down the road as well. There's some interesting stories about case fixing around them and their impact on Chicago. Is well, huge.
1: something I meant to tell you too before about about Jeff Fort. I went to Mount in Mount Carmel, which is on 64th Street in the morning. And after school, they had police police over there at the corner of 64th and Stony for us to get on the to get on the bus. Well, uh, that they weren't there when I got when I started wrestling, and I was wrestling from um, almost from the very beginning. Deegan and myself would would have to walk down 64th Street from Dante over to Stony Island. And uh, that was, in fact, Jeff Fort lived right there. He lived in one of those buildings right there. That was the, that was the headquarters of the Peace Donation at that time. And then we had all kinds of, you know, initially all kinds of, you know, run-ins with, with some of them. Eventually that stopped. But when I was a policeman, I wound up breaking the arm of one of Jeff Fort's girlfriends, that was a real bizarre situation. They were worried about me when I was a policeman that that he would do something to me. what it, had it happened was it was a real strange situation. Up on uh, Commercial Avenue uh, around 92nd Street, they had all kinds of stores there. What somebody was doing was they were breaking those huge stores. these people would leave like pairs of shoes and stuff like that They advertise them. Uh, somebody was coming coming by. Breaking these huge windows and stealing stuff, they couldn't find the people that were doing it. In fact, they had a couple of squads that were assigned to be there and to you know and to be a short distance away and try and catch them. Because when it would happen, the alarms would go off. That by the time they would get there, there's nobody around. And this went on for about three or four months. And uh, and the storekeepers were furious because those were very very expensive windows. You know, and and for some reason, they couldn't catch anybody. Well, I happened to be working a car one time. Uh, you know, I was in the squad. I heard the, I heard, I was about three, four blocks where I heard the alarm go off. And so I raced over there. And when I got there, I couldn't see anybody. I walked around and, and looked into the alleys. And here, they had a couple of these burnt out buildings that were there. And it was pitch black. I had a feeling what whoever's doing it is running and hiding in here. And you can't, you can't see them because it was, it was pitch black. And the, I walk in there in the alley and I said, I hear you. Come on out or I'll start shooting. About a minute or two later, here comes a guy and a girl. Probably, they were probably about maybe 16, 17 years old. The two of them come walking, come walking out. We take them into the police station. There's an upper floor and a lower floor. We take them upstairs, and we're waiting up there for the uh, police women to come because, you know, they're going to take him in custody, and they're going to take the girl in custody. She's sitting there lighting matches and throwing, throwing the matches, and lighting them and throwing them, and she lights one, and she throws it at me. I'm, you know, I'm, making, I'm doing the paperwork, and she throws it on my lap. I said to her, you do it again, and I'll break your arm. She did it again. In my career as a policeman, I think I broke three. In fact, I know I broke three different people's arms. And what, what I could do is grab them by the hand and just twist. And you know where your elbow is. It would break that bone. In fact, when I would do it, you know, the, the hand doesn't go down. It just stops at a certain point. It would go all the way down. But when I grabbed her, I twisted it real quick and, and, and broke her arm. And uh, you know, oh, she starts screaming and crying. Jeff Ford is my boyfriend, and and uh, he's going to kill you, and this and that. My uncle was the police commander. Uh, Marty Ryan was my was one of my uncles, and he happened to be the watch commander at night. And this particular night, and I go downstairs, and I said to him, I said, you know, oh, I, I got a problem. What do you mean you got a problem? And I told him what happened. And you know, he was a sharp old timer. He was an interesting character. He says to me, You should have let her jump out the window. I get an award for saving for saving her life. The papers write it up. She tried to escape by jumping out the window. I grabbed her and, you know, saved her life. A real weird situation with, with Jeff Ford. But no, he never I never heard from him and maybe she was lying, but again, and you know the, the the people, the police, there were really concerned because I mean Jeff Fort was a notorious character, Notary- and they were Notorious
0: that- and very powerful.
1: Oh, um, oh yeah, absolutely.
0: Back to these high school years. You're you're on a pathway to university. Are you looking to escape Chicago? Some people have a guided path, and others are adrift. What's Bob Cooley's agenda? Is it Is it to go to university and come back to Chicago?
1: in fact, Marquette was only about a hundred miles, a little over a hundred miles away. The reason I went there was because they gave me a scholarship. I never planned on going see what had happened prior to that too at Mount Carmel every year for the for the seniors they had a exam not an exam, but they had a yeah, it would be an exam that you took, and the top the top one half of one percent would get scholarships. To any public, any private school in Illinois, they wanted the kids and all to go to these special classes. You got there at six o'clock in the fucking morning, and uh, whatever. Vegan Ballard and myself, we never, none of us went to those classes. all three of us took the exam. It was at a girls' a girls' school up there. All three of us wound up winning scholarships. All three of us wound up in the top one half of one percent. As part of the scholarship, you had to take these certain classes, genius classes or whatever they call them, and I wasn't going to do that, so I turned that down. I didn't want I didn't want a scholarship where I had to go in there. And as I told you, I was dating this girl, uh, dating this girl, and my thought was I'll marry her and get a job at the steel mills. Her father makes big money there at the steel mills, and that was my ambition. When I'm contacted by the the coach from Marquette. Uh, you know, and they offered me the scholarship there. I decide to go to get away. You know, you know, we lived in a real—it was a real bad neighborhood. It was getting worse and worse. Just to get away from there, and you know, well, let's let's go sing. Let's go, because I never had a problem with tests or anything else. Yeah, I was very tell lucky. me about
0: that. Was it was it easy for you, or did you did you work hard?
1: Oh no, I didn't. I didn't work at all. I mean, I, I, uh, you know, same as when I became a lawyer, I never. I never read books or anything. I could remember things. I I was fortunate enough where I could read something and uh could, you know, could recite it, you know, for days and weeks afterwards. I never had a problem with uh, you know, with uh with school.
0: So you had a, photo- I you never had did a my- photographic memory.
1: Right. I I never I never did did my homework in fact the way what we did over at the corner of 64th and Stony there was a uh, there, there was a like a coffee shop. What we do in the morning is, uh, you know, we go in there and we grab these other kids that we knew did the homework all the time. We grab them as they're walking by and we copy their we copy their homework.
0: You graduate from Mount Carmel. You get a scholarship to go to Marquette. Sayonara, mom and dad. You're happy to leave. At Marquette, you're not taking a real job, but you're running gambling schemes?
1: You know, I took a job to start with because, you know, I had to get some money. The scholarship was fine, woman board, but we didn't get fed in the weekends. The the kitchen was closed in the weekends there. So that would have been money we had to, you know, we had to get ourselves. And my parents didn't have any money to give me. Began made contact with somebody who worked in the teepee, the teepee was the main store. They used to grab all kinds of letter sweaters and other stuff, and we would sell that in the side. Uh, people would contact Vegan and myself, and if you wanted to get a letter sweater or you wanted to get some other of uh, these other things, uh, quite often they were out of it over at the teepee, but we'd, we'd sell it to you for half price.
0: You guys were grabbing some merchandise and then setting up a side operation.
1: You know, the the guy that was, you know, when when he was supposed to be bringing the stuff in from the trucks, when he was supposed to be bringing it in and storing it there, a a lot of the stuff he would throw to the side. And, uh, you know, John would say, we've got this and we've got that. John was the one that would say, you know, we've got sweaters today and we've got uh, shirts today and we've got hats and we've got this and that. I had a couple of guys that, you know, that wanted to run around like they were athletes and. I would sell them a lot of my equipment. I would get the equipment for nothing and, uh, and I would sell them. You know, my, I had the letter sweaters and the rest of that stuff and I would sell that. But but my, the main money I made was playing cards. I played cards from, I would play cards until four or five o'clock in the morning and I wouldn't go to school. I wouldn't go to class. And uh, I made a lot of money doing that. I mean, we're talking, and I say a lot. You know I might make 15 20 dollars a day that was a lot of money at that time
0: and is this but, side is this side gig where you're selling jerseys and clothing is that is that doing well too so coupled with oh, those yeah. two things you guys are you guys are doing really well
1: well I was making good money in fact you know in fact with with Billy too now with Doe Murphy the very first day I was there at uh, Marquette we got into three different fights they had the breweries real close by I, I i bought my first suit. It was a wool gray you know uh, dark dark gray uh, almost uh, almost looked like it was black suit. I had the suit on when i the very first day I went to market i had you know I went there wearing a suit, and I bumped into bill murphy on the on the jock floor. He was a football player. We went to the brewery and what they have they had a deal there where you have to go through like an hour through the brewery and then you go to a room called the the brown Jug. And there they for about a half an hour, they bring you little glasses of beer. And so we go in there, and we're sitting there. And, and uh, when they finish up, everybody's supposed to leave. But uh, Billy and I, there was a third person with us. I don't remember. I might have been Bernie Bottom. But there was a third person with us. And we moved, to, we moved to the second room, you know, where they were bringing the new people in. And so they served us drinks again. We did this like three times. And the third time, when we did it, you know, these guys that were serving us, they were a little bit older than us, but they said, wouldn't you You guys have been here now, you know, two or three? Things, oh, no, it wasn't us. It wasn't us. And uh, when they wouldn't serve us, we get into a physical fight with them. And afterwards, you know, they, had, they, they were calling, they called security. We went through the back, the back, we went out the back, and they had this, this fence these steel fences with the barbed wire or whatever in the top. And we clomb over those things. And as I'm jumping down, I ripped, I ripped my suit, the thing stuck in the back of, back of my suit and it ripped, it ripped everything. It ripped it all the way down. I'm I'm running with my underwear, you know, showing underwear showing we get on Wisconsin Avenue and we're, we're now walking towards the, you know, towards, towards our school there was a motorcycle gang that was always there by the line in front of the library. And uh, they start making fun of me and whatever. And we get into a fight with them. And we get back to school and there's a place called Milt right across the street from school. And we go in there and we get into a fight there with the boxing team. <laughs> you might say I arrived, there with- I arrived there with a bang. You packed it all and- in on
0: day one. It was all downhill
1: <laughs> from there, right? We got involved in and all those things. And, and I, I did write in the book too, when I finally you know, said enough is enough with, with vegan that John was like the leader of the group and they were all committing burglaries and doing all kinds of other stuff. And the only reason I wouldn't do that was because I was afraid that it would break my father's heart. If he got, if I got caught, I have been arrested a couple of times for fights and stuff like that. But, uh, I just wouldn't, I was afraid to do the other stuff. I wouldn't do it.
0: When you were arrested for these fights, were you given the normal treatment?
1: Fighting is no big, I mean, you know, okay. It's not not like they're robbing a bank or something. I mean, I was just always in fights. In fact, when, and you know, a lot of times I wouldn't take any crap from anybody and and uh, especially when somebody would give me a little bit of a hard time, you know, bang! I, you know, I'd, I'd whack them and whatever. But but you didn't got, have a, you had, didn't
0: have a rap sheet from fighting.
1: Never got convicted because they had they had boys court. It was a Jewish judge, and on one occasion, myself and a couple of others, you know, got arrested again, charged with disorderly conduct. You know, for you know for, because we were involved in uh, you know in, in fights. And uh, went before the judge, and w- what the judge told me was, if I see you in here again, under any circumstances, he said, you know, it's going to be, it's going to be different, and and I knew he meant it, and uh, and so I'm, you know, I'm I'm trying to be, behave somewhat. I was with, uh, I don't think it was it wasn't Bill Murphy, but I was with Jim Popjoy, and a couple of other people and we went to a cubs game and uh, jimmy had a his father his father was a politician and jimmy had a, a convertible we, we were coming back after the game and we had been drinking and uh when we're coming back there was a guy in another car that cut us off or we cut him off and we're exchanging we're exchanging words with him and uh and he stops the car he stops he stops the car in front of us and he comes out and I wind up whacking him as he comes running towards us. Uh, the girl that he was with jumped on my back. I gave her an elbow and, uh, and we get back in the car and we drive off. Well, somebody got the license plate and they wind up going to his house and they wanted to know, you know, who the other people who the guy was in particular that, you know, cause I guess I, I guess I broke the guy's jaw. And they wanted to know who the guy was that, you know, that uh, quote-unquote attacked this guy. And I told him, Jimmy, if you give my name, I'm going to wind up in jail. I said, you know, I'm going to wind up in jail because, you know, it was only like about three weeks before the judge had told me, if I see you want. And Jimmy Crowley was an easygoing, you know, a bit, a bit overweight, a bit of a fat kid, and an easygoing sort. He wasn't, he wasn't a troublemaker of any sort. But he wound up getting five days in jail because he wouldn't tell he wouldn't tell him who it was. And
0: when you're at university, what are you studying? Uh, finance. Are you enjoying it?
1: Oh yeah, I mean, uh, finance. Uh, you know, I love. I I planned on I planned on making money. In the summer, I took a job at the Ford plant, working at the Ford stamping plant. My God, was that hard work! Uh, and and I'm thinking to myself, you know, I don't want to have it. This is not something I want to have to do for the this, rest of my this life. the Ford
0: plant in Chicago or in Milwaukee area?
1: Oh no, it was uh, no, it was in in Chicago. The Ford plant, stamping plant. The, the way I went to work there, my father would drive me there. At about, uh, was, I started work at six, and he would drive me. He would drive me out there. Somewhere about maybe it was a good half-hour ride.
0: One uh, thousand East, East Lincoln Highway, Chicago Heights.
1: Yeah, that could be you know, it. That there? could be a bit, it, it. yeah, oh yeah, it's way way out there. What, what I would have to do is hitchhike back home. You go into the place. There's no air conditioning in there. And this would be in the summertime. And you go in there, and they have you working on these machines on the assembly line along with these other guys who have been doing this, you know, for years and years. And they used to enjoy, you know, loading it up so fast and so hard, you know, that, uh, you know, uh, we couldn't catch up with them and there'd be a pile up there and then we'd get yelled at by the supervisor and the rest of it. Mm. And and brutal because there was no air conditioning in there. You had all the grease and oil in there that would be, you know, would be, uh, there'd be fumes of that stuff all over. Yeah.
0: And so this is another experience for you, where you're shaping your direction. This is a pathway. Bob Cooley is not going down. Bob Cooley is not going to work as a labor in a factory.
1: Absolutely not. Absolutely not. In, in a brutal, in a brutal way. And, and so, and so, it's ironic is when I got thrown out of Marquette. Uh, in my freshman year, we thought we were getting away with it because we had we had gotten somebody had gotten us a key to the back door, so we could come in and out. You had rules there; you weren't supposed to be out after one o'clock in, in your freshman year. If you were, you got punished and you got jugged, as they called it.
0: You got and, what, is jug, what does jugged mean?
1: Uh, that means that you, you you get punished. You have to you can't leave the dorm. In other words. You have to stay there in the weekends and, you know, and at night you can't leave. That You can't even go out after like seven o'clock. There was, they had some punishment. I thought, I thought we were getting away with it because, you know, we would go out and we wouldn't come back. We, we wouldn't come back until three or four in the morning. We'd go to these strip joints. I'd go with Beacon and Skid and this kid Podesta. And, uh, and and just hang around and we'd come in through the back door and it, the alarm wouldn't go off because we had a key. They had moved us right next to the counselor into the room right next to the counselor so he could keep an eye on us because we were always doing stupid things. We were plugging up the, the water and I mean, we just were doing dumb things. And it turned out he was afraid of us for whatever reason and he didn't report us until he was through at the end of the year. And at the end of the year, he, sh- he showed us for missing like, you know, like about 50 bed checks and all kinds of other stuff. Now, when I'm in my sophomore year, I thought I was getting away with all the stuff that we were doing. In my sophomore year, after a short period of time, we, I started with the card games and the rest of it. We had rented a room right across the alley from our dorm, and we were throwing these parties. What happened you go, when you go to Marquette, uh, and when you first come in there, the freshmen – They have they have these uh, mixers they call them where you're all supposed to meet other people from school and all the rest of it. The apartment that we had was about a block and a half away from place where they had these mixers, and we had made contact with somebody who worked in the office. He got us the names of all these for these different girls' schools that were these girls' colleges that were close by. And what we would do is we would throw these parties, we would go get a barrel of beer, we put it in the bathtub. I think we charge a dollar for a dollar for the guys and fifty cents for the girls, all you can drink was you know, was the deal. We're talking about a one bedroom apartment. We would probably get a hundred to a hundred and fifty people shoved in there to the point where you can barely move. And we're at the front door taking money from all these people as they're coming in, you know, there's no beer left and oh, yes, there is, you know, go back there. And it would take them maybe half an hour to go back there. And by that time, we've collected the money from all these people. And we'd leave. We leave, but they would still party because others would go get their own stuff. But we were doing this for about a month, every week for a month. And sometimes what I would do is I would stay, there'd be a bunch of people still hanging around there. We're talking about, you know, Three thirty, 5.00 in the morning. And so on this particular day, and I'm sleeping in the bathtub, right? you know, everything is out of there. And I've got a pillow. I put a pillow in the bathtub and there were like 10 people sleeping already in the one room, on the floor and on the bed. And I'm in the bathtub. And this is when people are coming in there and pissing and shitting and everything else. But I'm, I'd, be, I was, I was, I'd be drunk and I'd be passed out. And this particular morning, the screen opens up. I open my eyes, and here's a disciplinarian. thought you were dreaming. I knew, how was, I knew it was no dream when I saw him. He was a big guy. He's a Carmelite priest. These are Carmelite priest. I'm pretty sure his name was Father Holder. I'm pretty sure that's his name. Here he is standing over me, and he reaches down, and what little hair I have left in my head, he picks me up by the hair, and he says, I want to see you in my office at nine o'clock right now it's probably about six o'clock and And the reason they were the reason they were furious was because we were getting bigger crowds in our place and they got at the Marquette mixer. That's how they found out realized something was going on uh and and again, we weren't I, I was supposed to be I was only a sophomore and I was still required to be in the dormitory because they had the scholarship and the rest of it and the deal was. They're gonna they're gonna let me with, withdraw from school. I lost. They took away my scholarship. And so obviously, you know, I'm not gonna be. I can't. There's not. I I can't afford anything. I'm I'm living now in the uh, in the apartment that we had. A vegan was thrown out too at the same time. Gary Pedesto was the uh, the football player that uh, John was rooming now in the sophomore year and was rooming with him over, at, over at Noonan Hall in a, in a different hall. Uh, his father owned some. His father owned some. Uh, what do you call it? Some big uh, grocery stores back in California, and I was going to go to California.
0: Are you, remo- are you remorseful that, that you're getting removed from the university? Do you put up a fight? Oh, are well, you, sure. Are, are you concerned what but your I'm, parents are going to say, or do you? Just- I'm
1: not going to go home. I'm not going back. I'm just going to leave. I'm just going to go to California now. What's interesting about all this too? I wouldn't do the robbery they wanted to do. When they wanted to rob the, when Deegan and Podesta and Podesta wanted to rob the cleaners across from the library, and I wouldn't do that uh, with them. Uh, but but now I'm going. I'm going to leave. I'm just, I'm afraid. You know, I'm afraid to go home. You know because of the embarrassment of it, and obviously they'll be upset. And so I'm going to go to California.
0: And what? let's go, my, but You're 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 not gonna rob. You don't you don't want to rob the cleaners because that's a bridge too far for you.
1: Same as I wouldn't uh, I wouldn't commit those burglaries and robberies back there when you know with vegan and those people. These other guys were out doing that all the time. I wouldn't do it. When you say I back there, wanna... you,
0: you meant when you were growing up in high school, they were committing robberies.
1: Oh yeah, when I was at when I moved to Felicitas, yeah. I'm going to go to California. I'm just not going home. Uh, I've been kicked out of school for about a week. And, you know, and uh, I'm just waiting for, I'm waiting for Gary. Now, Gary had not been caught up in anything. Gary was going to be going back to California for a vacation. There was going to be some holiday was coming up or something. And we were going to go back. John and I were going to go back there to California with him. And just set up whatever back in California. Uh, his, he claimed his parents were wealthy and whatever, we could stay at their place and, you know, and, and move to California. I was about 18 at the time, 18 or 19. So 42, 52, about 1961. In fact, I'm pretty sure it was because of something else that happened. So anyhow, my sister went to Marquette. My sister Pat had a scholarship up there. She was older than me. She had been there for a year before before I went up there. I'm I'm sitting there in the apartment. It's about a week or so after I was, you know, thrown out of school. There's a knock on the door, and who's there but my father? Son, I want you to come home. I I know what happened, you know, and I want you to come home. And he took me home. And, uh, you know, and I went back to Chicago. And I remember when I went back, my mother's like, yelling at me how could you have done this and my father Stel, 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 please you know Stel, you know because he's worried that you know i'll do what i did
0: and uh, on that ride home do you recall the conversation did your father have a strategy for you
1: all he said was you know he was said "Now, son you know what's happened has happened and uh you know he says i can maybe understand you uh You acting up, you know, being away from everything and, you know, whatever. But no, it couldn't have been nicer. I think monkey obviously was afraid that I'd run away. And when I was home and my mother started with that, you know, which is understandable, but, you know, I was getting mad about about her constantly yelling at me now. I'm at home and, and she's yelling at me and, you know, you can't go out and you can't do this and you can't do that and you get yourself a job now. And I got tired of her yelling at me, so I left. In fact, it was it was about maybe four or five days uh, after this. Now I had I had made contact with John Began, who had been thrown out. John actually came by the house and and he told me, he said uh i've got an apartment over there why don't you come on come on down here and so a day or two later remember my father remember was in the in the front room my mother was in the bedroom and i just packed up a little a little suitcase and uh snuck out the back door and john picked me up and took me down took me downtown
0: and so this begins a new chapter in your life are you are well
1: it you- was <laughs> it was it was a very short visit down there because i moved in there with them and what we did for electricity there was john and another guy another guy that you know had the apartment it was up on the second floor and and there was like a fire escape between these are all those real old buildings there on Dearborn street they were old 40 50 years ago but they they were these brownstones. The way we got our electricity was we had, there were a couple of gay guys that lived across the fire escape from where we were. And what we, what John had done was he had some long electrical cords and he plugged in to their, you know, to their outlet. That's where we got our electricity. And I heard then, then I heard John and the the guys out in the fire escape. and, and, And he's saying, you said it was only, would only be for a day or two now. It's been, and then we're going to unplug it. "In John's, you know, basically, John was, he, he could make these facial expressions that were really, you know, kind of scary. And he basically said, now rip your eyes out or something if you do. He said, you know, I'm, I'm waiting for my, I'm waiting for a check to come in and, and we'll do it. But uh, you, 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 you do that and, you know, whatever. He basically threatened them. What is ironic is, I got a job working over at the loading trucks at United Parcel. Uh, It was a good paying job, but boy, that was rough too. I'm working there for about 10 days, but what I would do after a while was, because the work was so hard, I would load up the truck starting, you know, towards close to the middle, load up like a wall of stuff there, and then every so often, because you got a conveyor belt, bringing all the stuff around. I'd sit down and, like, you know, almost fall asleep for a few minutes, you know, because it was so rough. And uh, I got caught, and when I got caught the second time, they fired me. I've got no job. I've got no money. And something else happened. John didn't have any money, and and John hadn't paid the rent. Uh, The landlord came there, and, and, and John wouldn't let him in. And finally, when John walked out, he got into a fight with the landlord, and he punched him. And the landlord called the police. So with that, I grabbed my stuff and I headed back home. I had nowhere to go, so I go back home. My father answers the door, and you know, son, you know, you know. And I said, I decided, <laughs> I, de- I decided to come home. And, and, and when I come in, my mother said, "What happened this time? What kind of trouble are you in now?" And then my and, and my father, now, Stel, Stel. You know, Bob, come on in, come on in. You know,
0: your father was a peacekeeper. He knew you. Oh, had, yeah. He knew you had to go out into the world, and become a man, and find yourself. But he also didn't want to let go, and he knew you were in trouble. Well, he, he was just
1: obviously he's worried that I'm going to take off again. When I didn't, I didn't want the embarrassment of it. I was just going to take off, and my father wanted to make sure that didn't happen. Uh, so, but my my mother was pretty was pretty smart. She was nobody's fool. <laughs> she Sounds like she it. had a figure. I, di- I didn't suddenly just decide to come home at nine o'clock or 10 o'clock at night.
0: What happens next? Uh, I,
1: I, I come back home and I get enrolled at Loyola. I uh, I get a job. I had about three or four jobs and, and I couldn't and I couldn't keep them because, again, I felt I was a lot smarter than these people I'm working for. And I just didn't I didn't like taking orders. I'm trying to think I worked at Metalcraft Corporation. I had a job there. They made picture frames. Before the stuff can be packaged, I'm supposed to inspect it, make sure that it's done right and the rest of it. And I find out after a while, they're getting paid more than me. I'm supposed to be a supervisor. I wind up quitting that job. I applied over at Quaker Oats. And they were over there in the uh, merchandise mart. And uh, I applied for a job. There as a cost accountant trainee. And when I, when I went and applied for the job, I remember there were all kinds of people there. There was a, a room full of people that came in, applied, and I applied for it. And I lied and I told them I had more education than I had. You know, my undergraduate it was, it was finance with with accounting too. Accounting was like my undergrad, but I indicated I had courses I didn't have at at Marquette. And, and when I applied for it, and they gave you they gave you a test, and I remember too because when I applied for it. I was real friendly with the secretary that was there, you know, older than me and all, but I was talking to her. I was real friendly with her. And I got hired there. They hired me for the job. There were about maybe 20 secretaries or whatever, you know, you know good looking women and young girls and the rest of it that were working. And there were about five of us, five or six of us as you know, that were working in the accounting area. And I was in charge of it was tape and boxes and and something else, figuring out how much was used and how much, you know, would have to be ordered or, or whatever. And all this, you know, this bullshit, you know, little figures here and figures there. And you you do all this and you get it all done and you try and do it every day so it's correct every day and then at the end of a third, it was a end of a twenty eight day period or a thirty day period. You have to check to make sure everything checks out, and and it didn't. I'm going over all this stuff and all this stuff to try to figure out what mistake I made, you know, who knows where, and, uh, and it still didn't. It still didn't register. What eventually happened was they put a wall up there. We were being distracted because of all these females, I guess, and they put a wall up there, so we're, like, enclosed into an area. Again, I didn't think I was being paid enough and what I've earned, uh, and I quit that job. You know, I, I took two or three other jobs. I got enrolled in Loyola and, uh, and I was there for about a year. And then when I wanted to enroll in day school full time, I had to apply all over again. And in my application, they asked, you know, prior, you know, prior universities or schools. And I indicated Marquette and it said on there, uh, were you on, ever on athletic or scholastic probation? And I indicated both because I had been. And, uh, and so they told me that, uh, they wouldn't accept me. I wasn't, I wasn't going to be accepted there. So I come home and, uh, you know, tell my dad that, uh, you know, they, they won't accept me. A Couple days later, my father takes me back to Marquette. He said, you know, I, I, I was I went to Marquette yesterday and I met with Father Holbrook and he wants to uh he wants to talk to you. So I go back I go back to Marquette and meet him and and he tells me your father tells me that you've straightened out and you're working hard and you're doing this and you're doing that and he said and you wanna go you wanna go to Loyola? And I said, Well I have been I have been there. I've been at night school I said, but I want to go to day school. And he said, deal was the thing that was worked out at Loyola was if they would be willing to accept me back there, they would they would accept me at Loyola. So what Father Holbrook tells me is, well, he said, uh, I'll make contact. He said, I'll make contact with them, and I'll tell them we would be willing to accept you back here. He said, "But if I was you, I wouldn't apply back here."
0: When you're sitting in front of this man again, did you feel like you changed and that you understood the gravity of the moment?
1: Absolutely, because during this time, I had stopped all the other nonsense. Uh, I was no longer, you know, hanging out with the uh, with the with the others. I wasn't around vegan at all. I had completely lost touch with him. I stopped you know, associating with him. I'm about 19 now, and my father's in recruit processing. I forgot one other thing that happened when I was at Marquette. I got arrested on one of the fights that I got into, and I got, I got charged with disorderly conduct. And I had like I had like gotten probation. Well, they didn't call it probation; something else. I had that on my record, and and got arrested on that. There was a bar right across the street. If you are Wisconsin's you know, Wisconsin uh citizen you could drink when you were 18. if you if you were not a wisconsin resident you had to be 21. well the big party scene was over there at a place called i think it was called the vogue there was a you know it was a he- real big you know real big bar with a you know with a huge area and uh, that's where everybody would go on fridays and on wednesdays and so i was in there one time with my phony ID, we had phony IDs, you know, indicating we were Wisconsin residents, and the police came in and raided it. And when they raided it, I managed to I managed to get out. I was I was someplace else. I I went back over to the teepee. I'm in there, and now it's about eight thirty nine o'clock. They raided it about six o'clock, and it's about eight thirty nine o'clock. And I figured, well. If I, you know, if I go back there now, they're not going to be coming back. They've already raided it. They're not going to come back. And if I don't come back and go in there and let these people see me, cause there's a couple of guys that work the door, you had to, you know, go through a door check. Uh, I figured it's safe to go back. So I went back. They came back. <laughs> I remember the policeman's name was Callahan. He was the guy that had, the, had a, a foot patrol there. Anyhow. They come back in and this time they catch me in there and they take me and they take me out and they put me in a squad. They put me in a squad and they're going to take me back to the police station. They stopped the car in Wisconsin Avenue. There was an argument. There was some people that were arguing or about to fight in front of us. and, And the two of them got out to go and break that up. And I got out of the back door and I just ran away. They came over to the dorm and, uh, you know, when they would call me down from the dorm and I'd look out the window and see a squad there, I wouldn't come down. But eventually, uh, eventually I did and they arrested me again. I stopped, you know, hanging with those people. You know, I went to work. I went to school. I got a job with an advertising agency, a real good job. And they were paying me like, you know, something like about $2 or two fifty an hour, which was, you know, huge money at the time. Most jobs you got paid like a dollar an hour, hmm. uh, you know, or, or even less at that time. But they it was a real good job, and I could work whatever hours I wanted. In other words, it was it wasn't fared off in school. That's when my dad suggested, uh, you know, you can you can you can take the test. He said they were hiring policemen at the age of twenty. You can take the test, and we'll see what happens. So
0: you're at so, you're, you're enrolled at Loyola.
1: I'm, I'm like do,
0: do you have a desire to become a police officer now?
1: I never did until the moment he said to me, why don't you apply to become a I never thought about that because well, they didn't get paid much <laughs> I mean that was my probably why I never never that, that was not an ambition to be a policeman They don't get paid spit. But at that time, almost all the police had second jobs, you know, or or they were crooked, you know, or they made money there.
0: Walk me through the next steps. Is your father's suggestion to go into policing exactly what you do? You do take the test?
1: I took it because it was a, you know, because it was a good job at the moment for me. and And when he did suggest it, initially my thought too was, you know, just to get paid, just to get paid to and get paid during the summer when i took the test i came out in the very top of the test in other words they take the people you know the top top ones first when i took the test i came out like in the top 1% of the uh, of the scholastic then when i did the physical too i was in, you know rated one of the tops because i was in fantastic shape physically and the rest the only problem i had was i was about 15 pounds underweight for my size, I was about six foot tall. I was supposed to be, I don't know, maybe one fifty, one six whatever it was. I was like fifteen pounds underweight. When I was at Marquette, I was wrestling one thirteen. After I quit wrestling, I was like close to that. But I had to I had to keep my weight under a certain, you know, a certain amount so I, I would be starving myself too to stay, you know, like I was. I wrestled like 113. I'm pretty sure that was the weight that I wrestled at Marquette. When I when I took the weight, I took the test and it turned out I was in the top 1%. And I could I could go right away and it just so happened they were starting a class a week after I got out for the summer at you know at uh, Loyola. And the class was I think it was at the time it was I think 6 or 8 weeks but it would have worked out perfect because I wouldn't go to I wouldn't go to night school afterwards. I, you know, I would just take the summer off from school and, and go to the police academy and get paid. When I went to the academy now, yeah, I'd like to be I'd like to get out. I like the excitement of the idea as the excitement of all of it being a policeman. I remember the first time we went we went in khakis. And I remember after a couple of weeks, that's when that's when we were to get our weapons. And uh, I remember my dad gave me his gun. He hadn't used in about twenty years. I can remember the the, the strange feeling because I never had a car. I didn't get a car until I was about twenty. I was about twenty two. I didn't have a car. I didn't have any money for a car. Mm. And and so I remember uh, going, getting on the bus, and going over there to the bus stop. And here I am now wearing a gun. <laughs> Working a gun. I've got my, I'm not in a police uniform, but wearing khakis and uh, and here I am wandering over there, but I've got a star. They had already given, they had given us a star and whatever. We rode the bus and everything for nothing and I've got, I'm, I've got a gun and whatever and, and wow. And but why, the, me, why the, me
0: back to this test? So you, you, you take the test, you pass the test and with flying colors, You're in the top 1%. Do you have a perception that the police, the Chicago police department is a entity, a force for good, or is it just a job? When you, when you go in there, are you in your mind entering an organization that is a necessary evil, or is it a altruistic journey to help your common citizen? And and I'm just trying to understand, you know, we could talk for days about policing and Chicago policing, but I'm trying to understand at that moment in time, is this a altruistic journey for you and you're entering into an organization that's doing positive things? Or is Bob Cooley saying, hey, this is a consistent, steady job, and I know... There's some bad stuff going on here. What? Where's your mindset?
1: Well, you know, and, and I'll be honest with you. I never thought in terms of any of that. I mean, you know, to me it was a job, and it was a lot easier than working at the Ford plant, or even, you know, and, and it paid better than you know at the at the um, at the Metalcraft Corporation and whatever. It began. I began thinking this could be exciting. You know, I always love danger. That was always my nature. Don't ask me why. But, uh, you know, I always loved danger. I wanted, you know, I wanted to get out there and I wanted to do, you know, do do a good job. And I wanted to, you know, and my thought was this, I wanted to be the superintendent when I first started. I'm thinking, I remember, I think he made like 50000 a year. There was some figure. In terms of a policeman, there are all kinds of policemen. There are, you know, there are the ones that you talked about that want to do the right thing and whatever. You also had certain people like Rick Borelli and some of these others that were gangster types that went in there so they could have a badge and they could steal. I mean, there are there are certain, hopefully only he, a small percentage.
0: Rick Borelli?
1: Rick Borelli was the first policeman I met. And that's a whole story all in itself. When I got when I got transferred up to the 18th district, this is after I I almost got killed on the south side, and uh, and and when that happened, uh, and and I got out of the hospital finally, they wouldn't let me go back to work because I was still, you know, my left hand was still in bad shape, and and I was still not in the best of physical shape, and uh, so what I started doing was I started going to the north side. When I was, uh, you know, when I was supposed to be uh, at home, I was not on the medical, but I would go to the north side. And one of my one of the kids I met in police academy, Tony Corzantino, he was a vice detective there in the 18th district, you know, and I would hang with him. He was working undercover and I would do undercover work with him. I would go with him, you know, when he was uh, when he was attempting to buy narcotics and, and and a lot of other stuff and uh I was getting into fights with some of these people when when they would attack us, and I got to meet a lot of the other policemen there uh because you know i didn't I wasn't supposed to be there, but I was there at night because it was giving me something to do. I would go drink in there with Tony and then I would go out and do police work with him uh, Tony was a real tough kid too in fact i became i you know i started running around with tony uh you know he was a real tough Italian kid who was straight as an arrow anyhow. And I got to In fact, I met the commander. I met Commander Brash was the commander who eventually got indicted. But I had met him because I was introduced to him by one of the sergeants who was telling me, "This is you know Bob Cooley." He said, "He and he told him he said he's a policeman out there in Fourth District, but he's been you know he's on the medical. But what he's been doing, he's been help. He's been helping us tremendously here. When I finally went back to work at Fourth District." The uh, the commander requested that I come to work there, to work in the 18th. That was Rush Street. He requested he requested that I come. would you want to work narcotics? So I said, Oh, I'd love it. He puts in for a transfer for me to come out there, and I go to the 18th district, and I go to work with one of the sergeants. The first day I'm there, I go to I go out there. I'm hanging around uh, Old Town and in whatever, and the sergeant tells me, Well, he says, Bobby says, now. You know, if, if, if and when you, you find something or, you know, somebody approaches you or whatever, or you see some illegal things going on here, the bars are doing something illegal. You don't make an arrest. What you do is you contact me. You contact me before you do anything and you, know, and you, you don't talk on the radio. You just call and say, meet me and, and we'll handle it from there. And I know why. I know what these guys are doing. You know, I, I've seen that when I was there. And, uh, you know, I can just see that, you know, obviously these people are on the payroll. I said, you know, no problem. And when I come in that day, that night, when I when I finish up, it's about six o'clock. When I come back in, uh, the Lieutenant is there, uh, you know, and, uh, I had, I had seen him a number of times before, but never talked to him. And he said, listen, he says, Bob, he said, uh, no, we had lockers there. We had lockers up on the second floor. He said once a month. He said there'll be something. There'll be something in your lo- in the locker for you. That's for you. And I said uh, there'll be something. He said, "Yeah, there'll be a little package in there for you." And I said, "Lieutenant," I said, "You know, no, I, you know, that that's okay." I, I I said, "Lieutenant, I'm in law school." you know, I, I'll be finishing up. I, I don't want anything. I don't want it. You know, I don't, I don't want anything, but I said, uh, you know, thank you for the offer, but I don't want anything, but, uh, okay. The next day I come into work and they tell me you've been transferred back to uniform. And I know why, and I don't care. I don't care. I'm. I'm not getting involved in this stuff. The next day is a Saturday or no it's a Sunday. The next day is a, you know is a Sunday. You know, I, I go to roll call. I go to roll call there and the captain and who has the roll call indicates that you know you'll be in car such and such. And uh when I go to the car, here's the policeman I'm going to be with. His name is Rick Borelli. He's an Italian, Italian guy. tough looking and hi, Hawaii, and we're in the car. And when we're in the car, he, uh, it's 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 what they call a. Uh, it was 1850, which is what they call a cover car. It just covers. It's a two man car, one of the few two man cars in the district. And whatever there's problems or whatever any place, and they put in a call for assistance, you have to. That's where you're you're going to be going. And I meet him, and the next thing I know, we're we're playing cards in there. We're playing, we're playing gin in there for money and whatever, and, and we start talking, and, and we really hit it off. And he's the one that got me started then with, he, he turned out to be a mobster. He was connected with Marco and all those people, so.
0: Mobster first, cop second, or a cop first, then becomes a mobster?
1: Oh, mobster that uses a cop, you know, uses the fact he's got a gun and a star to go out and commit criminal activities.
0: So he's so the one. so one of these characters that joins the force already in the mob, and basically becomes an inside man, if you will.
1: And I Trojan exactly horse. They, well, it's and they they do it so they can legally carry a gun. In fact, that's you know people like Hanhart. That's how they picked up these burglars and turned them over to these guys so they could kill them. He's the one who had those uh, burglars that were involved in Arcado's house. That you know he's the one who had him arrested and turned him over to the mob guys so they could kill him. As Butchie told me that I said, how, you know, I'm talking with Butchie, Harry Alleman's partner, uh, the other, you know, the other mob, you know, the other top uh, hit man. And I said, gee, how could those guys have been, how could those guys have been so stupid to have been, you know, grabbed one, you know, one after the other. And he said, you know, what are you going to do when somebody comes in and says you're under arrest and puts the handcuffs on you? And yeah. he told me Hanhart Hanhart took care of that.
0: Was it common knowledge that Hanhart was on the take? It was like the worst kept secret? No,
1: not until... You know, I, I wrote about that in the book, too. When I first met with those, you know, FBI agents over at the motel, and uh, we met at a motel over there in Countryside. I said to them, there was a there was three FBI agents and there was Gary Shapiro in there, a couple of uh, a couple Shapiro of other being U.S. A, attorneys,
0: being a prosecutor. He
1: was the uh, yeah, he was the head of the he was the head of the strike force. He was He was the one I first went to see when I wanted to cooperate. And when I when I met them at the motel, I said to them, you people are, have been exposed from day one. What are you talking about? I said, I said, your liaison, the liaison between you guys in the police department, I said, is Hanhart, Commander Hanhart. And he said, what about him? And I said, he's the mob's guy. He's," I said, he's the one that meets all the time with Pat Marcy. I said, and he's the one that uh, is giving them all the information. He was the one that the FBI contacted with the police department to give them all the information to work with, to work with them.
0: And what's Shapiro's he to me, reaction to this?
1: Well, it wasn't, it, it, I wasn't talking to Shapiro. I was talking to the FBI agents. Shapiro was just sitting there. And I said, and when I said to him, I said, this guy is our Well, I probably use the term our guy, you know, because I have been partners with Johnny and part of the first war. I said, he's been our guy and, and he's, the, he's the, la- the liaison you guys use. And he said, how do you know that? I said, I just know it. I said, I said and, and he's as corrupt as can be. He's been passing all this information back to all these mob people. And, he, and the agent said something to me. You don't like him, do you? And I said, "Not." I said, "Obviously not." And he said, "Is that why you're making up this stuff about him?" It turns out this guy was a close friend of his, who had been dealing with him for years. And I'm the one. I'm the one who gave them the information. Remember, Hanhart was the one that eventually got indicted because he was part of the jewelry robbery ring and the rest of it. But you know, then they wind up indicting him. But I, I never saw that agent again. I became friends with a lot of these agents. I mean, like real close friends. or, you know, even after I left and I finished up, or I would still, you know, be talking to them constantly, and and uh, they would want to meet up with me when I, when they heard I was going to be around, they would want to come just to hang around with me because, I mean, they were so uh, happy with what I with what I was doing, and they realized what I gave up to be doing what I'm doing. This guy, it was the way you said it, too. Is that why you're making up this stuff about him? But one of the other agents told me this was a personal friend of his. But here's what's interesting about all that. Hanhart, on dozens and dozens of occasions, would be sitting there at the first ward table with Pat Marcy in -hmm. full uniform.
0: This is out in the open.
1: Yeah. I mean, in full uniform, we're talking about that, you know, noon, one o'clock in the afternoon, you know, and not just once or twice. He would be there probably once a week, maybe twice a week, and he'd be sitting there at the first ward table with a squad car parked
0: in front. This is a establishment which has notoriously been under surveillance by the feds. Everybody knows that
1: it's Pat Marcy, the the mob. They had taken over the entire political system, not just in Chicago, but the state of Illinois. When they took over the first war Democratic Organization, they took over all the elections to begin with. That was the first thing they did. All the elections were taken over by the first war. Everybody reported to them. The city is not run by the mayor. The city is run by the city
0: council. That concludes this portion of the conversation. Stay locked in for what's next. You'll be hearing about Bob's years as a cop, a horrific accident that nearly kills him, and how this accident puts him on the path to becoming a lawyer.